0: This episode of Confessions of a Creative Director is brought to you by Highmark Tech Systems, the structure behind the world's best exhibits.
1: Hey
0: everybody, thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of Confessions of a Creative Director, the only podcast Made by a creative director for creative directors, those people who want to be creative directors, those people who hate creative directors, and everyone in between. The show's really for everybody who wants to get an inside look at what it takes to be a creative director. So yeah, thanks for joining. We're going to have a, we're having a, a really good show today. Uh, how are you guys doing? How's everybody doing out there in the world in, uh, what is it, week eight, I think, or or nine of the the lockdown here in California. Hope all of you guys are staying uh, safe and healthy and uh, making the best out of it. So uh, my very first guest today uh, for the podcast really is going to be John Eric uh, Amundsen, who I worked with at uh, Advantage. Um, He's an incredible creative director who I had the good fortune of working with for a little bit. Uh, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to um, to snag him from uh, from Jack Morton, uh, but we worked together for a couple of years. This guy, this cat man, uh, just super interesting guy. He's done all kinds of of crazy things. The nicest guy you could ever meet, and just a really all around great person and really, really super creative. And we're gonna get into all kinds of things, right? We're gonna talk about storytelling and the, you know, the creative process for him. We're gonna talk about low riders and break dancing. Yeah, you're gonna to have to listen to the uh, you're gonna to have to listen to the whole show and get into some some deep philosophical conversations about creativity and whatnot. So again, thanks for tuning in. Let's get right into it with John Eric. All right. Hey, good morning, John Eric. How are you? Good morning, Jaime. Great. I don't think that I've, uh, in the whole time that I've known you, I don't think I've ever used your last name. I've, I've just always referred to you as as John Eric. You're kind of like one of those uh, single name celebrities, like uh, Madonna or Sting. You're just you're just John Eric.
1: Yeah, John Eric Amundsen is. You get a little too Scandinavian, and when when <laughs> people say both names together thunder and lightning comes down and and the Nord is god it gets really complicated so we we keep it strictly john eric
0: yeah just keep it john eric the first time i i think i talked to you uh was back when i worked at jack morton and you were working freelance uh with some folks from the jack morton uh new york office and i just uh just remember hearing this really mysterious cool sounding voice on the other end that just went by john eric yeah, and then uh, a couple of years later, just through serendipity, you ended up uh, out in L.A. looking for a gig, and I was lucky enough to uh, hire you for a little bit, um, and we we had some fun. Then you moved on to bigger and,
1: and better things, but uh, it's nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Jaime. Yeah, um, fond memories of those times for sure. I, yeah, I recall taping a chicken McNugget to your underneath your laptop <laughs> for three or four months, only to find out that it hadn't decomposed at all.
0: yeah it it was a lot of fun i also remember there was also a really fun experience where i brought in my uh my oldest boy uh zach to the office one day and you were so you
1: were yeah
0: yeah he was he was tiny and and you were so cool you you brought in a little toy i think it was a car or something it was a batman that's right yeah yeah and you did a you did a magic trick for him the magic Um, hat (laughs) yeah the magic hat you always wore that that cool hat and uh uh, he still remembers that. He still remembers that, that that day and, and what you did. So that was really, that was really cool. Uh, so how are you, man? How are you dealing with all this uh, crazy nonsense?
1: You know, it's, I think it's hard for me to, you know, thinking about New York, right? I mean, this is probably the first time that I've ever, you know, I mean, I always yearn for New York and, and you know, sometimes I'll just do Google sidewalk walking around my old neighborhood to feel like I'm there vicariously, you know? um so it was, it's really it's really sad for me to, to think about what the city's going through and you know calling and periodically getting calls of, of older folks in the neighborhood who passed you know and i think it, for a lot of people that may not be in new york or may not be near the epicenter of this stuff it doesn't hit them as hard you know so for me to be away from new york and i mean just yesterday i got a call that two people passed away that we knew quite well oh my god um, so you know we, we it was just really sad to to get a call and then my uncle and I were talking and then he called me 15 minutes later to be like, I just got another call, you know, it's just really upsetting. And then to think about, you know, the energy of that city, um, you know, he was sort of describing that just the energy of that city and not being able to go out and interact. And it was just really hard to me imagine that city that way. So, you know, and then in, when you look at the, the broader effect it's had, um, you know, it's, it's just been a real gut check in a lot of ways, obviously. For, for people and, and sort of the, the illusion of this sort of uh, safety and security and almost American idealism that we've had about our economy, about our politics, about all, everything that's going on, you know, in the media and how, how things have sort of unraveled and to a certain degree sort of set a level of transparency to the vulnerability that we all have here, you know? I think, yeah. um, you know, economically, our, our economy looks fantastic when it's going 150 miles an hour with the top down. But it doesn't look so good when it when it when it kind of has to go off road a bit, you know. And this has been a real gut check and a test for all of us. So, the the hopefully the silver lining is that there's 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 some changes from this, and we learn from this uh, moving forward about what a more sustainable system looks like. So, absolutely,
0: yeah, I I, I definitely think that that uh, coming out of this, uh, there's going to be a lot of really interesting innovation, and mm-hmm. and we've proven that. The technology can work in terms of people working remotely and all that. So I'm excited to see what that uh, brings. So before we go down that that rabbit hole uh, that we could probably spend an hour sure. on, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you a question that I'm asking all my guests, and and that question is how do you describe the role of a creative director? Because everybody has a little bit of a different spin on it, a d- little bit of a different opinion. Um, you and I came up probably different paths. I've, I've come up more of sort of the writer, copywriter, uh, conceptor side. Um, and, and, and you, you know, you're an artist, you've since, you know, really grown and developed all kinds of other skill sets. But how would you describe the role of a creative director?
1: I think creatives are storytellers, right? So whether we're telling story through sculpture, whether we're painting, whether we're telling it through song or telling it through dance or telling it through marketing or an advertisement or whatever that, whatever the, the, the vehicle or the instrument in which we express or tell stories. So creators are storytellers and stories uh, are really the things that sort of bind us together as individuals, right? I mean, the power of stories is that they can affect us um, personally quite deeply um, but they also can connect all of us in ways that we'd never imagined. I mean, you can connect complete strangers from all the way across the world with a story. Um, so, as a creative director, you know you your responsibility is to bring the best stories to the front and bring the best stories out of your creatives and encourage an environment um, that 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 yields um, the deepest, most meaningful personal stories in, in 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 the case of what we do for our brands. And for our clients,
0: yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great answer. I'm I'm super big on storytelling as well, and I, I think we're going to get into that a little bit uh, more coming up here. But tell us and tell the listeners a little bit about your journey. You have a super interesting background. When we first met, you would tell me a story or tell me something that you've done, and I was like, "Come on, this is this is some bullshit here." It's like you started a charity, really, in the Philippines. Come on. And uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the rest of the stuff. I'll let you tell the story. But you've got a super interesting background, so tell us a little bit about that, and then uh, pepper in the uh, pepper in the the professional stuff as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I can't take too much credit for the project in the Philippines. As much as I was a, a big part of that, really. Ron Carino, who's the founder of that that particular program, really deserves all the credit and more in so many ways for not only starting that program but heroing it and always keeping this sort of unbelievably optimistic view of humanity in the face of all these things. I mean, he, he, he's a really special guy. Um, what was the, uh, what was the yeah, um, the project? My, my background, I, I, my family immigrated, my, my, my mother's family immigrated from Hungary and my father from, from Norway. Um, and they decided to find each other in the prairies of Alberta, Canada. So that's where my brother and I were born. And I was born and raised in the prairies in Alberta. And I lived in Canada until I was 18 years old. And as any good, prairie albertan canadian kid would do i had dreams to be a professional breakdancer which was the furthest thing from anything <laughs> around us right so um, a lot of a lot of a lot of canadian right, uh yeah. a lot of canadian rappers and uh break uh, oh it was huge yeah we were we were, <laughs> we were as raw as it gets man let me tell you um but you know i think i what, what it really was was an appetite and a desire for for more and you know it, that's what really brought me to the united states originally was i was a competitive break dancer, so. Um, I ended up traveling all over the the country and eventually all over the world competing, you know, sort of at a global level with that. And it was, it's really, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on the incredible creative outlet that 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 is, you know, and I've actually done a lot of speaking and podcasts about that. So, but um, that ultimately led me into the creative arts. Um, And uh, I actually studied in San Francisco at the California College of Arts, and I got a degree in graphic design. And, you know, the combination of sort of the the academic side and then the uh, the arts and cultural, you know, and and dance side, really, New York just couldn't have been a better home for me. So moving to New York and sort of sinking my teeth into the industry there um, really helped establish myself um, as a creative, you know, in, in a professional career. Uh, the way the Philippines thing came together was that, you know, growing up in Canada, I, we grew up with a lot of Filipino kids, you know, my, my family was Catholic. And so, you know, the only other Catholics around were, were the Italians and the Filipinos. So You know, I spent my childhood sort of raised in Filipino homes and I'd always had this sort of deep connection with Filipino culture. And my friend Ron, um, his father had passed away, long story short, and uh, he wanted to educate children about um, uh, tobacco awareness. And he wanted to go throughout the Philippines to various provinces and schools and educate about tobacco awareness. And he had known that I was a sort of famous dancer at that time and that I had a connection with the Philippines. So he sort of wanted to use that as a bridge to kind of connect with youth. And that's how it started with a very small group. And over the next 15 to 20 years, the program grew tremendously um, to uh, where we just really started working with youth empowerment. And um, we brought over a million books to the Philippines and set up libraries and computer workshops. And it gave me an opportunity to learn and explore that the, you know, this incredible country over 20 years. And it's had a huge contribution to the person that I am. And I'm really, really grateful for that. So that that's sort of how that came together.
0: And then did that lead to the uh, to the Muay Thai,
1: to the no, fighting, or no, how did but, that come up? Yeah, so my dad was a martial artist, and we were always into martial arts. Um, and so the Muay Thai thing was always sort of there. I mean, I was, uh, an you know, my dad is quite, you know, he, he's a, a highly competitive athlete. You know, my dad has silver medal in skiing, and he, you know, and he's... So we grew up in a household of very competitive and, and, and focused athletes. So yeah, the Muay Thai thing was part of that. And um, I still to this very day, you know, train five days a week and and, and coach amateur teams and stuff. And yeah, that, that gave me an opportunity to be in Thailand and training and, and being out there as well. So I, you know, I've got a lot of fingers on my, my fist, we'll say in terms of the things that sort of sustain me and, um, you know, bringing it back to creative storytelling. I mean, where do we even start? I mean, the stories from the Philippines alone, you know, but. All of these things sort of contribute to your understanding of the world that we live in and, and the things that connect us. And I feel like, you know, passion is sort of like a flame and it, it it doesn't really discriminate what it burns. So you can just keep feeding it stuff. Right. And the trick is just to keep the flame big, you know, regardless Absolutely. of what that is. So. so
0: with that in mind. Right. And and the storytelling, obviously, is the output of uh, your process. And maybe it's it's even part of the process. But can you describe a little bit of what your personal creative process is like. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be limited to your your day-to-day job, which, by the way, I don't know if you want to spend a, a couple of minutes talking about that. Um, I told the folks up at, in the introduction a little bit about what you're doing, but maybe if you want to touch on that for a second, then tell us about what your personal creative process is like.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I currently work for Zarnowski, family of brands, and I'm a creative director here, but I also lead sort of um, strategic and, 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 and creative leadership for the company, which has been a really awesome opportunity to sort of collaboratively work with just some of the most intelligent and creative people that I've ever worked with. And even in the face of what's happening right now with sort of the COVID situation, our our ability to uh, be flexible and and, and think in different and unique ways. I was just really totally impressed with our agency's ability to do that and the incredible stuff that we've produced. So um, that's that's my current role. Uh, Amongst a few other things, I I write and, consult for a few TV series with, with IMG and some of the writers over there. So I'm, I've sort of got my hands in a few things. You know, my, my personal style that is sort of a culmination of, of life experiences and learnings, you know, now has sort of come together to be this, you know, I hate to say intuitive, but I, I really have this intuitive sense of of stories and, and, and how they come together. But I'm constantly learning and, and reading and exploring new ideas, uh, especially as technology and um, our, our world changes so radically in, in, in how we receive stories and information, it's really important to constantly learn about those forms and, and, and how storytelling exists in there. I think, you know, some of the biggest impacts for me in, in terms of my my process, my creative process, would be, you know, early, I had a deep fascination and interest in uh, cognitive uh, science and psychology and, 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 and human behavior, um, and, and sort of positioned around history, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I recommend for all creatives to read, you know, if there was a few books that have influenced me, um, Yuval Harari, who's a fantastic writer, wrote a, a book called Sapiens, and, and a follow-up book called Homo Deus, but Sapiens is sort of the history of humankind, and, um, you know, I dare not try and quote Harari and, and butcher his words, but, you know, Harari talks about the importance of storytelling is is much more, it's more significant than you've ever imagined. I mean, stories, really, or what we would refer to as intersubjective realities, are really what binds human beings together. Um, Whether it's a modern state, a medieval church, an ancient city, all of those things are rooted in sort of common myths that just live in our collective imagination. There are no nations, there's no money, there's no human rights. All of those things are intersubjective agreements, right? Uh, A $20 bill objectively is not much different than a newspaper. They're both pieces of paper. But we have collectively agreed that that has value and that collective agreement is built around a myth or a story and even if you look on the bill itself it's got pictures of presidents and nations all of those things are reinforcing the value of that with other stories that have value um, so those stories bind us together and that's really um, what made human beings different than any other animal um, if you love boca junior soccer team from argentina And you live halfway across the world, and I spot you in a pub with a jersey. You and I are binded by our collective stories and and personal connection with that team. And we'll run and give each other a hug. These are two complete strangers that, you know, a million years ago in the wild would have been competing for resources. So these stories are really what what humanity hangs on, and they're changing all the time. So it's really important to to understand the value and importance of stories, um, not only as they, exist in, in terms of mankind, but how they exist in our uh, shaping our views of ourselves. And so that sort of then leads into sort of the cog science and psychology side of it. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky are, are, are really famous. They won a, Nobel Peace, or Daniel won a Nobel Peace Prize in economics, actually. But they, were, they wrote a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it sort of talks about the cognitive biases um, yep. and sort of the filter in which stories enter our mind. And how these stories enter our mind really shapes who we are. And it's really important to understand those filters because sometimes we think just truth or logic is enough, but not necessarily, stories are even more powerful than reality. Um, and so as we shape these stories, whether uh, just as storytellers or for brands, we always have to consider who we're writing these stories for and make sure that these stories are sort of in line with their 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 personal uh, and world views. Um so you know, we're getting we're getting very, you know, Philosophical. At- we're going. Yeah, we're going uh, deep, really, man. that's that's the root um, yeah. which I Great. explore a lot of things strategically. It starts there.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny that a lot of the things that you're you're mentioning, um, I've been kind of uh, working on. I've, I've been enrolled in this uh, Alt MBA program for the um, Seth Godin's Alt MBA program for the last four weeks, and we've talked talked a lot. Uh, about some of these things about storytelling, the, the authors that you mentioned, I can't, I can't pronounce the names, but uh, we've read some of those articles, and it's, it's completely, uh, really fascinating. Another book that we read uh, in in the in the course was called The Art of War, and I think it's uh, Stephen Pressfield. Have you have you read that? Uh,
1: you, you've mentioned that to me. The War of Art. The War of Art. The War of Art. Yeah.
0: I'm curious on your take on this. He talks a little bit about the muse and about this idea that the the creativity doesn't necessarily come from ourselves, but it is kind of this alternate being, right? In the in the past, uh, I believe the Greeks and others talked about the muse and having muses, and that's where the word genius comes from, right? Your genius. Uh, people have sort of con- confused that going forward and, and think of it as the person, but in the past it was it was actually kind of sort of this alternate being, right? That that helped you be creative. What do you think about that? Is that something that uh, I've recently started to try to think about that and not not really put it on myself, but put it on the muse? What do you think about that idea? Is that interesting to you?
1: A little bit. I mean, what we're talking about ultimately, I mean, there, there's two things that we're entertaining there. We're, we're, we're entertaining the idea of essentialism, the idea that there is sort of some inherent gift that has been granted to us, either from from someone before us or that we would carry on after, and also the idea of duality. The idea that there is yourself, there is Jaime, and then there is this other invi- invisible sort of floating self that drives the other self, right? And, and duality is, is you know, is, is, is something that we all can relate to and understand and is sort of inherent in human consciousness, this idea of duality. I personally, I mean, my understanding of duality is a little more academic, I, I would look at it a little more objectively, or I, I try to, um, but I believe that, you know, the source of creativity Um, meaning like the the driving force, I I don't think that it's as linear as we imagine or sort of fixed. Anthony uh, Appiah, Kwame Appiah, is is a uh, sort of philosopher, sociologist who writes about identity. And he talks about culture and identity. And he says, culture is not an element from the ground that we mine, but instead a fabric that we continually weave. And there's something really beautiful about that, about the fluidic nature of culture and identity. And I believe the same for creativity. I don't necessarily believe that creativity is this fixed unit that that sort of is there. I believe that it's it's, it's constantly weaving and redefining itself. So as we look at the things around us, it's about creating those connections and pulling those things in. You know, a great poet will tell you that like, there's an unlimited amount of poems that can be written with sort of a finite uh, number of words. Very few poets invent a new word. But what they're doing is constantly rearranging these words that we know, these fixed values in infinite ways. So I think that's sort of the state of creativity is this constant reweaving. So it, you touched
0: on you touched on something kind of interesting that um, I, I've also talked to people about that. Right. Um, sometimes I think that uh, clients some sometimes or, or people that we work with have this idea of a magic process, a magic bullet sort of process and there are agencies that have hung their hat on that idea right it's like come work with us we have a you know proprietary process sure and and i think that's bullshit i think i, I don't think that exists i i do think there are great tools that can help you up front in the process that that you should be very rigorous and um you know thoughtful but then in, in the actual creative process, it, it should get messy. It should and it can get messy, right? So sort of, it kind of, if you're looking at it as a drawing. It's like the beginning of the of the drawing is a straight line. That's where all the rational and, and linear tools come in. And then when you get to that creative part, it should look like an etch-a-sketch drawing that's, you know, or whatever that, that thing was, you know, that you would stick a pen in and make these circles, uh, just kind of chaotic. And then at the back end, it starts to get straight again, and then you have a, a very beautiful little output. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there, there is something to really linear uh, creative processes?
1: Well, listen, you know, what, we're, what really what we're talking about is tactics and strategy, right? Listen, the hammer is an incredibly useful tool, but not so useful in the salon, right? So your tool is only as good as the job it's, it's designed to do. So first and foremost, before we start picking the perfect tools, we have to develop a strategy, um, and that's where it gets met. Right. And you're yep. right the stri- the the strategic you know the strategy around this particular problem should be very unique to that problem, and then we'll define those tools. And then absolutely, there are tools that are built for the job. Sometimes we have to invent brand new tools, but a lot right. of times there are tools that are there. And we also have to protect ourselves. You know, uh, as creatives, um, like it or not. Um, is as, as much range as we'd love to believe we have, we will also fall into sort of procedural nature of saying, listen, I do a lot of good work with the hammer. So I'm going to bring the hammer out and, 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 and it <laughs> no matter what, right? Because we, you know, we, we tend to go to the tools that work. Um, so we have to remember to sort of keep a broad range um, and an and open mind about the tools that we'll need and not necessarily go reaching for the hammer before we've, we've developed that strategy also yeah and like,
0: it's not even i mean uh, just following your analogy there right it's like sometimes we use the hammer because that is the only tool we know we know about and we're afraid to use the uh you know the chainsaw or, or sure. whatever the analogy sure. is right so it's like hey i brought my hammer it's like well this is, gonna, this is gonna be a job that requires us to chop some shit down you're gonna need a chainsaw my brother
1: yeah and you know there's, there's a lot of things that will contribute to that right you know uh there was a, a researcher on, you know, heart surgeons who use stints, and uh, they, they, you know, did the, a study where they, they, you know, analyzed a variety of patients, and they were quick to, to prescribe the stint because that was the nature of their job. That's what they were designed to, that was the, what they had been doing for, for years and years and years, right? So you get comfortable enough with the tool, you get comfortable with this linear procedural learning, and that's, you know, every hammer sees a problem as a nail. And also, the other thing that's really important to remember, and Steve Jobs said this, he said, I don't care who your company says you are or what brand manifesto you're putting out there. You will ultimately become what you measure. I love that. And we, you and I can relate to this where if a brand says, okay, guys, everything's about lead retrievals, lead retrievals. How many lead retrievals did we get? And they get so obsessed with the data. Listen, I don't care who your company is. At the end of the day, if all you're measuring is lead retrievals, you're going to end up trading Starbucks cards for freaking leads. You know what I mean? And everything goes out the window. So now all of a sudden, the Starbucks (laughs) card becomes the deal because of how we've chosen to measure that stuff. So you have to be very careful about how you measure success because that's ultimately what you're going to turn into. So, but listen, we we also have to remember as creatives, as storytellers, as experts in that space, listen, if my client is, let's just say they are a, a database computer company. Listen, that particular company is experts on, uh, cloud security, and no latency in streaming. They're not experts on storytelling. It is our job to function as the experts in the storytelling space. Um, and they are going to bring their procedural expertise as best they know. People who've been working in big data, they want success to be measured by data too, because that's how they think. So no wonder they're saying, I want to see a number that showed me how many emails lead retrieves I got or something, because that's how they see their world. So it's important for us to help educate them.
0: Sure, yeah, it all comes down to their their worldview. and and that's always been a struggle, at least for me is just um, trying to communicate how we're gonna tell a broader story and still deliver what they want to measure, but um, trying to keep them sort of separate. Like let's tell the tell the beautiful story. We'll collect the stuff that you need. But um, that's always been a, a little bit of a, of a challenge,
1: and that's the art. Um, that's the art, Jaime. That is that is the art right there. Um, is the ability for us to, I mean, listen. When you create a good idea, you have to, you know, that thing has to launch into space and land on the freaking moon, you know, which means you've got to check every bolt. A beautiful idea in the creative studio very rarely arrives in real life like that. You need to design ideas that can take that beating. In film, they call it killing your babies. You know, a film writer has to hand, or film producer, director, hands that thing over to the editors. And some of his favorite scenes are going to be taken out and just butchered. Writers are the yep. same. They hand the first draft of their novel off and some of them are so terrified they won't even read the finished copy. You hear about directors. I never even went and saw that movie because they can't even bear to see what it looked like after the editing. Right. It's the same with us. We generate these ideas and we're like, oh my God, I don't even want to see it after corporate gets their hands on it or after, you know, some, you know, y- you know what I'm saying? Like, and so what we lay yeah, up is design good creative with that consideration. This thing has to be flexible. If it's too rigid, um, it won't survive the editing room. it won't survive the budget. it won't survive the, the the producer or the the shipping or whatever by the time it gets there. you know what I mean so a, a good creative creates ideas that can survive the journey and still deliver on site even if it even if it's just a <laughs> fragment of what it looked like in our creative room
0: right. Yeah, it, it, it start, still still has the feel or the flavor of what you originally developed. But you touched on something really interesting that I think is often overlooked, and that is the power of editing, right? The power to be able to um, pare something down to its very core. So wh- what do you think about the, about editing? And I don't literally mean it as video editing, but just thinking through how can I tell a shorter, more concise story Um, Or I guess the the converse is is also possible, but just editing down to make it the most beautiful, simplest story possible. um, Is there an art behind that?
1: You know, there is. um, You know, another book that I'd love to reference is called Make It Stick, and it's by Chip and Dan Heath. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, right. I, you know, and they, they really talk about simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. Right. They have they have this beautiful playbook. Um, now, none of that's written in stone, but they give you these really wonderful tools to understand, like, really what's needed, the sort of concreteness in stories. Um, you know, the idea of the unexpected creating gaps, you know, um, there's there was a great quote in their book where they say people will jump. To stop a single child running with scissors, but don't even flinch about a statistic of, you know, 100,000 children dying of malaria, right? So it's sort of like sometimes conjuring up emotion versus statistics and like really understanding the nature of of, of, of stories as going back to where we landed first is really, really important and understanding those those essential components um, that 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 create rich, meaningful stories and memorable stories. You know, I I you know, half my life, I couldn't remember my social security number, but you know, I could shut my eyes and relive some pretty epic high school stories that really had no meaning in my life, but just, just because of, of, of how they went down uh, and, and the emotion and things that went in it. Uh, there, there's another great quote. I'll, will quote Seth, Seth Godin, because you, you, you spoke about him and he was, That's talking, my man. he's the man. He was talking about Tesla, I think. And he said, no one needs a new car. They need a new story. And I thought that was so clever. And And what he said was like, listen, there's not one person who bought a Tesla today who didn't have a perfectly running Lexus in their garage the night before. You know, and, he, and he, it's just he's so right. Right. But what happened right. was Tesla gave them a new story. So understanding like that, that's our job. That's our position as a brand is to present a story that all of a sudden makes the story before that that wasn't good enough. G- going back to that and you feel you
0: feel uh, just a, just a quick little side note. hopefully this doesn't detour us too much. Oh, sure. but where where's the where does the responsibility lie in telling those stories? In other words, to you, just to build off the story that you said, these people had a perfectly good Lexus in the, in the car. Did we do a good thing by, well, okay. by you're, uh, yeah, you're uh, convincing them up, to... You're,
1: you're, you're opening up you know, Pandora's box. This, this is going to
0: go into uh, part two, three, and four, but just, just a quick thought. I mean, I, I, I do man, think...
1: The ethics of what we do. When we talk, I mean, you should have a whole podcast on ethics. Um, and I remember as a young designer at CCA, I had a teacher, she was brilliant, But she said to me, she said, the buck stops in creative with the designer. Believe me, the account team and all these people will will never stop it. Meaning like a cigarette company, you know, doing some type of advertisement. They need your magic. They need your storytelling. They need your gift to make that thing fly. And the buck stops with you. So absolutely right. You know, we, we have to think about, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's Harry Potter, you know, it's, it's like, you, you got to be careful how you use your gifts. Um, because, you know, dark forces are are definitely amongst us in this industry. You've all Harari mentioned this really beautiful, he, he framed this in a really interesting way. And somebody had asked him, you know, about, you know, where does love land in, in the future of humanity? You know, is, is love something that stays with us? Or does it eventually get weeded out here? And he said, it really depends on on what, tools we measure success by. He said, right now, profit leads innovation. And because profit leads innovation, we have some of the smartest, most brilliant people in the world working on platforms to capture your attention and keep it there. And unfortunately, fear and deception is much more profitable than love. That's why there's no fake news about wonderful things, right? Nobody makes a fake news story about a guy who, who, who started a dog rescue. You know what I mean? Fake news is always divisive and scary, right? Because they know that through fear and divisiveness, they can keep our attention longer on these platforms that ultimately leads profit. So what it comes down to is what are the driving forces here? And unfortunately we're working in marketing, which is still driven by profit. Um, and as designers, you, you have to think about that stuff. You have to think about ethically where you stand with certain things. And that is also an art and, and, and a gift and really choosing what clients and projects you, 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 you choose to put your time and energy toward. And I encourage, all creatives to to find something they're passionate about and a cause that's worth fighting for you know and in my case it was the nonprofit, the philippines you know and some of the best work and the most passionate i've ever been about projects were related to that because of you know because of of, of the, that 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 value that was there you know that um that was really important yeah you and
0: i both work a lot in experiential and events and big sort of branded experiences right so Specifically for that industry, what do you think the future looks like post COVID? You know, what are the what are the biggest challenges that we're going to be facing, in your opinion?
1: Well, something to consider um, because anytime you get a situation like COVID, uh, or uh, not that we've had a situation just like this, but anytime we we have a sort of intense situation like this where things tend to get a little bit polarized, our view gets very narrow. And we start to look at the immediate. And we forget a little bit about what's happening before or or or, or even can start to consider things that are going to happen after because of this, this radical shift. But I think something that's important to remember, and uh, I'll reference Kevin Kelly here. He wrote a book called The Inevitable. And he made a really interesting observation. And he said, as he sees the expansion of technology and, and and the dimensions in which it will grow, he said, commodities over the last hundred years have continued to go down in price, right? The cost of... A, Copper or, or, you know, everything continues to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to produce and In much more quantities you have accessibility to music and movies and things like you never had before and it's almost infinite How much that area has grown? But he said what's finite is attention You can't save it. You can't hoard it and we can't do anymore A human being can give 24 hours a day verse of attention if they sleep eight that leaves them 16 And it's a fixed, finite value. And he said, well, the value of all those other things have gone down, experiences have actually gone up in value, which means movies have only got more expensive. Concerts have got more expensive. And the value of human experiences Mm. is raising in relationship to the commodification and mass production of other things. The value of experiences is continuing to increase, and I believe that that trend, regardless of COVID or not, will continue to happen. So, experiences—it's humor- just going to happen in a different form. Maybe that's right. It'll always change forms, um, sure. and and obviously COVID will have a huge effect on that. September 11th had a huge effect on that. Um, people were afraid to go to a baseball game, um, you know, and, and this will too. Uh, now the disruption uh, the, the disruption of potentially. Uh, you know, diseases like this is much greater. You know, uh, that and 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 global warming and things. I mean, that that can put this whole conversation into a whole nother dimension where the the, the least of our worries is a music concert or marketing. Right. Um, but that being said, I think as we stand back and sort of look at the value of human experiences and the and the uh, and, and the value of unique personal experiences, they're increasing. And with that increasing value, will be will will lead with new ideas and thoughts. And 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 positioning around the value of that, um, so I think experiences right. experiential is in a really good place, even in the face of all of this, in the grand scheme of things.
0: All right. Well, you're making me feel a whole lot better, and, and i i like your I like your view, and i and I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I, I think you're right. I think, and if anything, you know, right now people are kind of starved for um, we're having all kinds of cool new experiences. Sure. I mean, Absolutely. you know, my, my, my wife had a, uh, comedy night zoom party where we played, we got a bunch of friends together and I put together a playlist on YouTube of all these comedy clips and we all watched together and, and had, you know, cocktails and and whatnot. And I thought this is going to be a disaster. This is not going to work. Guess what? It worked. People had a great time. We all enjoyed it. So people are having cool experiences now, but I think, they'll, they'll crave that, you know, in person, human to human kind of experience. Uh, so it's just going to be how we reimagine it and what what steps we take to make it safe for, um, for everybody. So, um, all right, well, you know, we talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of heavy stuff. Yeah, let's, ta- let's have a little bit of fun here. Um, if you weren't a creative director, and this is kind of a, you're probably going to have a surprise answer for me here. But if you weren't a creative director, what do you think you would be doing? I and mean, you have a lot of outside interests already. Do you still have your lowrider, by the way?
1: Uh, no. You know, some guys from Japan came and got that. But wasn't that epic? Do you remember picking Tom up in that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Um, and John Eric had a, a, what What was it? A it was cut big, list? No, it was, was 67
1: a, Impala. Yeah. 67 Impala. 10 it was the back.
0: It was beautiful. It was, the, it was the least practical car you could have bought oh, to live in L.A. I but mean,
1: we were driving down Spring Street, just spitting gasoline fuel everywhere. I mean, it was it was epic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Tom Haydinger, our president, who's probably listening. Hopefully you have a good memory of that. But um, you you got into John Eric's car and just bounced all the way back to the hotel uh, so I, I'm sure you yeah, have a I figured good story about it. Mom was that. coming
1: from Connecticut, you know. I don't think they get a lot of lowrider action in Connecticut. <laughs> get, what do you mean? Get good good Yeah, they got they got a strong, they
0: got a real strong uh, lowrider community down there, all those cats. But if
1: you weren't a creative director, what do you think that you would be doing? Whatever I bumped into. I mean, I can shut my eyes and imagine myself, you know, going to India to learn to cook. I- anything, you know. I wander the flea market, I mean, and just enter worlds at every station. I I, I can't even imagine. I'm a wanderer and I bump into things and I fall in love with them and I go down the rabbit hole um, until either my body or my wallet breaks and I move on. Um, (laughs) And so far, this one has seemed to work out a little bit and and I'm sticking around. But, you know, I think my goal, you know, as a career wise is really to I want to be a participant in shaping the future. And I have deep interest in, 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 um, in, in technology and artificial intelligence and big data. I love, you know, that space. And I love the idea of, of, of bridging um, human experiences and, and this sort of understanding the face of, of humanism as we know it in that world. And I'd love to work with, with some of those companies as, as they shape the future and be part of that. So I really hope that wherever I land is, is somewhere there.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great answer. What do you think, what's the greatest lesson that you've ever learned from a, from a mentor? I imagine um, that you have quite a few different mentors, different types of mentors, but what's, what do you think the greatest lesson that you've taken from a mentor?
1: You know, I, 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 my parents obviously have, have taught me so much and shaped so much about my worldview. I mean, I could think of a, Ten things off the top of my head that my father has told me over the years that has just completely made me look at the world in just really powerful ways, and and um, but you know professionally, when it, when I think back, I remember working at Jack Morton and, and and Philip McDougall, who who I hope listens to this one day. He he was a creative director over there and a really fantastic, funny, smart guy. Yeah. He and I were working on a project, um, and we were working late into the night. I think it was like 11.30 p.m. New York. It was like a winter night. he and I were the last two in the office kind of grinding on something. And this project, you know, was just, we were really, we we just knew we had the right solution. And it was just really coming together and, and, and we pitched the project and the client liked it, but when they brought it back, they had made significant changes to it that had really just butchered it. And, The kind of account lead on it was like, okay, guys, you know, they loved your idea, but you know, here here are the changes. And I remember, you know, this is at a time, you know, these are big agencies in New York that are just, you know, it's, you know, Hungry Hungry Hippo style there, right? It's just marbles after marbles, get, you know, consume what you can. It's about getting as many accounts and locking them down. And Philip didn't like the idea and he saw that it was ruined. And he said, without even batting an eye, I remember Philip said, well, I think we should pass on this because this is the wrong answer. And I remember the account lead on it was just kind of like, couldn't believe it because they just, you know, they have one gear, right? And that's that's Win Accounts. And, and here, here, here your global creative director is saying, we're gonna pass on it. And what Philip said was, it's the wrong answer.
0: And as an agency, yep.
1: I don't wanna give them the wrong answer. When they're ready for the right answer, they'll know who to come to. Because he's like, they'll continue to do the wrong thing for a few years, it won't work. And when they're ready to do the right thing, they'll know where to come. And I I love that. I love that. And uh, it was, it it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about the industry. It taught me a lot about our role and his, just his, you know, it it was also his obligation um, and his duty as a good creative to provide the right answers. Even if it meant what wasn't necessarily right for the accounting team at the time, it was right for the agency. He understood how to position our agency as providing the right solutions, he wasn't going to give them the wrong answer. That just wasn't who he was. So, shout out to Philip um, for that.
0: Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to tag him. I think he's at Google now, right?
1: Yeah, yep. He's he's there working yeah. with the cloud stuff.
0: Yeah. I have I have a a, a funny uh, Philip story that I'll I'll tell sometime. But yeah, really cool cat. Really super uh, creative, and I and I love that. And you know what what's interesting though is that really takes some to to do that, which I I also agree is the right thing. You really need a lot of support from your from your upper management to be able to say that because it is tough and i get it you know yep. um i get the business side of it too but i think in the long run if you take the the long view that is um that is definitely the right thing to do yep. what uh, what are you reading right now or what do you i mean you you're, you're kind of like me although i think you're kind of like me on steroids in terms of consuming uh, information i love to read as i mentioned this is not a paid advertisement Um, although I'd be open to that, um, for the alt MBA, but this program has just, I'm on fire, man. I'm like, I'm shipping, I'm just creating stuff. Um, through this program, I was finally able to say, I'm launching this podcast. I've been talking about it for a while. I'm doing it. Um, as many of, you know, I'm a songwriter as well. So I started a song club and we've been pumping out a song every Wednesday, one song a week. We're up to five we keep this up. We'll have 52 songs at the end of the year. So I'm kind of on fire right now, creatively. And I feel like I'm just hitting my my stride. Um, and and a lot of it comes from reading these books and di- reading different perspectives and, and talking to the people in the Alt-MBA and learning ab- all about their perspectives. And, and so it's really been a, a, an exciting time. What things are inspiring you? Books, podcasts, documentaries, whatever it is, what are you getting uh, excited about?
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm an avid reader and you know, I, I referenced a few books in our conversation, so I should definitely give a little more details about those. I think one of them uh, I spoke about was the book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Now, that, that's a very large academic book, which is a challenge. But uh, Michael Lewis, um, who wrote Moneyball, wrote a project, yeah. uh, wrote another book called The Undoing Project. And it's a beautiful story about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky, and how they kind of came up with the ideas around thinking fast and slow um so i strongly recommend that book to, to creatives and thinkers i think you know it's just it's it's just such an important story seth Godin's um or seth godin apologies um this is marketing uh is fantastic as you've mentioned you you've yeah. done some work with him uh, i referenced his nobody needs a car they need a new story um it's just filled with deep insight and just turnkey stuff that's just gonna he's fantastic and I can't say enough about how great that book another really powerful book that I read is by David Epstein and it's called range and it's Hmm. it's about somebody mentioned that yeah yeah range is fantastic as creatives and it it really kind of debunks the idea of this sort of linear procedural start playing the violin at three and you'll be an expert by 30 thought of how the world works um and, and and how ideas are created I, I mentioned Sapiens by Yuval Harari, Sapiens and Homo Deus um, in terms of understanding really just the state of humanity, how we got here and likely what's to come is really important as we start to think about solutions and how it's shaping them. Uh, and then the last two, uh, I talked about Kwame Anthony Appiah, sort of sociologist. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Lies That Bind. And uh, it's it's about identity and culture and and how those are formed and shape our identity. Lastly is a really fun one called Algorithms to Live By. And um, this is by Brian Christian and, and a guy named Tom Griffiths. And it's uh, really just a look at sort of the 10 most impactful algorithms in our world. And what's really fun about this is that it breaks everything down to just this fundamental math in the beginning, but then you see this massive impact that these you know these brilliant mathematicians from 60 80 90 years ago and how they've shaped technology today and ultimately how those things are shaping our lives and I think it's really important that we sort of explore that and understand that in the face of of creating for these platforms um, so those are a few um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have have, have read some of those and be interested.
0: yeah I'll uh, I'll put some links to some of the books that we've talked about um, in the description so it's you know it's 830 in the morning right now. So my plan for having a cocktail on these podcasts has been thrown off a little, although I did sneak a little bit of some shamboard, little raspberry flavor into my into my coffee, just because I wanted to be real. I want to be authentic. I'm like a method actor. So um, we'll, we'll have a little toast here, uh, a little virtual toast. But I want to end with with something. Sure. And this is probably going to make uh, my my guests uh, uncomfortable here, maybe. But I just wonder if you can share a creative director confession. After all, this show is called Confessions of a Creative Director. Do you have any kind of a funny story or something that you want to get off your, your chest or maybe it's a, a, a pitch gone horribly wrong or anything that you want to uh, leave us with today? Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> he's like, what can I say I and not pitch get fired? Well may have to I mean if this if this if this turns into an issue, I may have to change the name of the show, but
1: it starts with a meatball move and ends and ends with a meatball move. So let's go with meatball move number one, which would have happened, <laughs> just, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Meat what is a meatball move? I'll tell you what a meatball move is. Meatball hey, move. Hey, you're like a meatballs, huh? you're like a sauce. In my entire life, between all the breakdancing and the kickboxing, I'd never really picked up any serious injury. You know, I I you know, broken the ribs and the jaw and the hands a couple of times, but, you know, flesh wounds. So the 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 first time I ever picked up a serious injury was I was on my phone and not paying attention, texting and walking at the same time, which is just everybody's uh, you know, favorite person in the world. And I actually stepped off a curb soft without seeing it and I jolted my back, you know? And I compressed some these little discs in my back and I have forever been sleeping with a pillow under my stomach and, and complaining about back pain since. Which leads me to: uh, We had a pitch early in the morning uh, in Irvine, and I, I, I won't talk about agencies or clients here or who I was with for their protection. Um, but getting on the four hundred five down to Irvine is not an easy trip, as you know, living living here in Orange County in Southern California. Like that's the worst direction to go. And you know, I hadn't been sleeping well because my back was just a nightmare. And this meeting had an 8 a.m. start time, and I couldn't believe it. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to get on the road by 6 to make sure that I'm there and square. So a buddy of mine, you know, had been talking about what you need, bro, is CBD, man. CBD is like everything you need for your back and sleep and all this stuff. So I'm like, (laughs) you you see where this is going. I I grew (laughs) grew up. I I, I smoked my fair share of weed growing up, you know, and all through my 20s. But then, you know, I just stopped. It didn't really fit in my life anymore so we're looking at a good 15 years since i've touched anything now i mean cbd cbd so i'm not not too concerned right and what i need here is a good night of sleep so that we can just is this a big pitch and i'm just not trying to show up there totally tired so he gives me this cbd uh to take before bed and i do and it was this black tarry stuff. And he's like, just take a little piece, man, about the size of a rice grain, and you should be good. And that—that that is exactly what I took. Anytime somebody tells you Listen, just take I know. a piece, I know. A
0: piece of, a, of a size of a rice grain. <laughs>
1: yeah. You already know you're in trouble, right? So 30 minutes in, I had realized this was going to be a problem. Um, it wasn't CBD. It was, you know, some... 2000-whatever generation, hey, let's grow the strongest possible weed oil in the lab that you could fathom. This is, you know, I, I I have, like I said, I have not even touched this stuff in 15 years. So you might as well have teleported me back to the ninth grade in terms of my ability to deal with this. By 10 p.m., I am so full-blown gone that I'm laying in bed just staring at the ceiling. Going to sleep this night is completely out of the picture. I'm just hoping I'm partially sober by the morning so I can drive to this meeting. And I just battle all night dealing with this. You know, I'm, I'm imagining my dog being kidnapped, every horrible, fathomable thing. <laughs> and we do a little Starbucks meetup, and the first thing uh, my account director says is she's like, oh my god, John Eric, look at your eyes. And I hadn't even looked at myself in the mirror. And I mean, it was just everything you don't want to see when you look in the mirror after eating edibles. Before your meeting, needless to say, um, I think my 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 life as a Canadian kid and my experience at a very young age smoking a lot of weed saved me here, and I was able to pull it together and deliver quite quite the presentation and win the business. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you remember? Do you remember what like what was the internal dialogue that you had right before you had to do the pitch? Like how did you how did you set yourself straight?
1: Well, the funny thing was I learned the entire night in bed before all of this that there nothing was gonna work. The deeper I tried to meditate and get a hold of myself, the deeper down the rabbit hole of just insaneness it went. So I just kind of submitted to it and and, and would just kind of go with the flow. And strangely enough, you know, I think I, I was so exhausted by the time we got there that the pure fatigue kind of saved me. I mean, at certain points I was biting my tongue just to just to to keep my you know, my thoughts straight, but um, <laughs> that's a great, a, lesson, a, lesson a great learned, story. A lesson learned. Yeah. We won the business. So maybe it's something I bring into my permanent pitch repertoire. You know, maybe I need to invite that back into the process a little bit. Who knows?
0: And that's a great,
1: that's a great place
0: to end, yep. buddy. I love you, man. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, we need to, we need to connect more often. I miss chatting with you. You're just one of the smartest and coolest people that I know. So we need to make a point of, of staying uh connected more often again thanks for being on the show and uh best of luck to you say hello to the wife nice
1: job, and uh you. we'll talk soon yeah over over a bowl thanks of john fuh. eric over a bowl of fuh, if we're lucky
0: absolutely or you can take me again to that uh that awesome uh filipino oh, yeah, spot yeah. i'm just not eating i'm not eating the balut man yeah, I'm, we'll, I'm telling you right, we'll right now I'll just
1: sleep in the car for 15 minutes after sweating it off yeah absolutely Wonderful. okay well, all right man time, i appreciate we'll it. talk to you soon yeah take care
0: That is a wrap on the very first episode of Confessions of a Creative Director. I want to thank my special guest, John Eric, the one and only John Eric, for joining our very first podcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsor, Highmark Tech Systems. You can find more information on them at highmarktech.com. Our theme music was composed by I Have No Idea. Uh, it's a song that uh, my old boss turned me onto. I looked it up on YouTube, I found it. I can't find who does it. So if anybody knows, please let me know so we can get in touch with them. And finally closing us out is the one and only Jay Cabrera. That's me. This is a song from uh, the song club that I told you about earlier in the episode. The song's called Black Chuck Taylors. About my favorite footwear. Cause that's my girl Find more information out about the show at cdconfessions.com That's it for now, we're out See you next time on Confessions of a Creative
1: Player